How much do we know about the Cold War? We'll find that actually the Cold War wasn't so cold. There was a real conflict. Do we have the full picture? It's often from the North's perspective. We want to get the story right. We've just got to include the Global South. Global South or the Third World. This is the secret struggle for Cold War dominance. A podcast that brings stories. He was a man without a country. Facts. Czechoslovakia provided Cuban intelligence. And historical background. These were places where stakes were too high. Of the secret and untold Cold War. Hello? Episode 9. Spying Blind Among Setter Trees. Welcome to the Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance podcast, in which we look at the untold stories of the Cold War, looking not only at the USA and the USSR, but also shedding light on the more junior players and their role in the whole Cold War struggle. So far on the podcast, we've taken you to India, Czechoslovakia, Tanzania, Cuba, Paradise Islands in the Indian Ocean. We've talked about Congo and Morocco, Vietnam and East Germany. And today we'll connect another set of two very distant countries. Poland, a big country in Central Europe that was a part of the Soviet-dominated Eastern Bloc. And halfway across the globe, Lebanon, a country in the Middle East that was perceived as neutral during the Cold War. Why was Lebanon interesting for Poland? It was a window for many intelligence services and also policymakers from East and from the West. And why was Poland interesting to some individuals in Lebanon? The word was that the Poles were selling its weapons. We'll talk about World War III preparations. That's no joke, actually. Lebanon would stay neutral, as, for example, Switzerland. How well did the Polish military intelligence do in gaining human intelligence from humans? For example, they didn't know the language. They didn't know Arabic. We'll also look at what doing business with rebels looks like and where it can lead. This one was used for terrorist organization, for conduct operations, recruiting new members and so on. And that was the example of state sponsorship of terrorism. We have a great show coming up, so let's get to it. Welcome to the Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance podcast. My name is Katrina Urban-Richterova. I'm the host and creator of this podcast, recording in Central Europe, Slovakia. And today I'm calling a specialist over in Poland, Warsaw. Yes, it works quite good, I think. I think. want to say one thing. I think you should have your phone like this. Yes, wait, 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 wait. So obviously yeah. it's November 2020. The pandemic is strong all around the world. So we're recording this over the internet. So my name is Przemysław Gastold and I work uh, as assistant professor at War Studies University, Department of Security Threats. And also my second job is a senior specialist within the Historic Research Office of the Institute of National Remembrance in Warsaw. In Poland, we are facing now so-called a small lockdown. How do you like a home office? 
Are you a fan or no? Uh, I'm not a big fan of the home office uh, because everything can distract you. Like, for example, you want to drink a coffee, you want to take a little nap. The fridge is not far from your desk. Never far enough. The fridge is never far enough. And these are the traps of home office. Okay, let's start our story today with Lebanon's capital, Beirut. In the 60s and 50s also, it was like uh, Austrian Vienna. So the Eldorado of Spies, a city with huge uh, financial institutions, a city with the liberal atmosphere, city where all the dots were connected, all the dots of the behind-the-scenes struggle uh, between the Warsaw Pact and NATO countries. So Beirut played that role as a hub for spies because it was a very important strategic location for everyone who was interested in uh, researching and gleaning um, intelligence about what was going on at that time in the Middle East. Poland realizes this, the strategic location of Beirut, that this is the place to be and pick up information. So after years of no diplomatic relations with Lebanon, in the 1960s, at the height of the Cold War, Poland finally sets up an embassy in Beirut, appoints an ambassador here and decides to seize the opportunity and also open a defense attaché bureau that would, apart from other military work, be used to conduct espionage a spying station codenamed Seder. Beirut was uh, chosen to be the most important window for Polish intelligence to conduct espionage in the Middle East, because when you look at Lebanon at that time, you would see a lot of differences when you compare this country with uh, its neighbors, like in, with Syria or with even Palestine. It was a country where the state administration wasn't so strong, where intelligence and counterintelligence services allowed to some extent several actions or operations conducted by foreign nations because they were not enough strong to thwart such operations. The country was perfect for trying to get to know how to deal with these entangled relationships in the Middle East at that time, where one day you've got uh, an ally who can become the next day your foe. This is in the 1960s, which is about 20 years after Lebanon's independence from the French. Beirut is a peaceful town, a great tourist destination, the Paris of the Middle East. Apart from this liberal atmosphere, the Poles also realized that an intelligence station based here would be less risky. Egypt, for instance, with its capital Cairo, was an important strategic location for many countries during the Cold War, and of course even now. But the Poles were no fools. Przemysław Gastold explains to me, if you have good, even cordial relations with a country, like Egypt, you can't do too much spying there, because it would easily destroy your relationship or economic ties with that country. But you do need intelligence, right? So what do you do? You do it from elsewhere. 
like the nearby Lebanon. The country was perfect for trying to get to know how to deal with these entangled relationships in the Middle East at that time, where one day you've got uh, an ally who can become the next day your foe. So we're talking about the 1960s, a time when Poland developed a more global intelligence policy, making sure the country has an intelligence officer in every corner of the world possible, anywhere they have an embassy really, and thus have agency, contribute or help in the Cold War struggle between the USSR and the USA. Now, we must also realize one more thing. This is the 1960s, which is only two decades after World War II, where Poland's citizens suffered greatly, Polish Jews were murdered. Also, it's at the height of the Cold War era, only two years after the Cuban crisis that put the world on the verge of a nuclear confrontation. So it seems threats are issued left and right, and Poland is making strategies, long-term strategies, not only about spying and diplomatic relations, but about survival. Yes, Poland was getting ready for World War III, and Lebanon looked like a good neutral country to serve as a base in such a scenario. The officers uh, from the station tried to prepare, and they did prepare several reports which included uh, Lebanon as a special secret hub for communication channels between West and East if the First World War would break up. This is a very interesting point in your article where you say it was a tactical move to get ready for a possible World War III. What would that mean to get ready? They wanted to find some places where they can conduct uh, secret uh, communication uh, channels uh, established like these channels or use some handlers to pass the information. And the Poles thought that like the during the Second World War, Lebanon would stay neutral as, for example, Switzerland. Moreover, they wanted to use Beirut station as a place for passing information. So... When somebody from Poland would like to travel to a Western country during the Third World War, it would be impossible just to cross the front line. So they would have to bypass the conflict, the theater of war, which probably would occur in Central Europe. And that person would have to travel through Middle East. And somebody would take care of that person at in Beirut and then maybe change uh, the documents, support with some other information, with weapons and so on. So the Lebanese station was chosen as a communication and support hub. The plans for World War III went actually as far as attempting to recruit a few illegals who, if things got bad, back in Europe, Poland, they would operate in Lebanon, undercover, inform about military developments, troop movements and so forth. This uh, whole idea of using Lebanon for Third World War as a spying hub, I mean, it was uh, quite seriously taken in war, so there were some initial reports, initial plans, but in the late 70s, and especially when the civil war erupted in, in Lebanon in 1975, these plans were abandoned. I mean, the whole idea was shut down because uh, during the civil war you cannot think of Lebanon as a spying hub. Okay, so that was one aspect of the Grand Polish Plan. But let's go back now to March 1965, when Warsaw starts building the Seder Station, or spying hub, in Beirut. 
Given that at the beginning of the 1960s, huge number of expats, over 360,000 to be exact, lived in Lebanon at that time, the Polish military intelligence felt good about their chances of going into Lebanon, working and recruiting here. Their achievements were very poor. I mean, when it comes to the human, human intelligence, they did not have any successes. They did not recruit any valuable resources within the Lebanese government or armed forces or even financial institutions. They didn't know how to do it. They just uh, tried uh, many moves to approach someone who would have important information but without thorough plans and concepts and without detailed planning it was impossible so it struck me that uh, for five years from 65 to 1970 the polish military intelligence in lebanon was unable to recruit any lebanese who would have some information Yes, so there were some candidates that were being vetted, but it never went further than that. In fact, in five years, the Polish military intelligence had zero recruits. But of course, they had to report some information back to Warsaw. Most of the data which was collected at that time went through open sources, so-called OSINT. Okay, just a quick side note so that we're all on the same page. Intelligence agencies collect or gather intelligence or information from various sources. We have SIGINT, intelligence collected from signals, phones, etc. Then we have OSINT, open source intelligence gathering, that is from any publicly available files, documents, the internet. And then we have HUMINT, intel collected from humans. And this is where the Polish military intelligence were lagging behind. Also, notice how I always make sure to say military intelligence. The reason for that is simple. There is civilian intelligence and military intelligence. Collecting intel on military matters, arming, disarming, wars, unrests, or armed deals, that is all intel interesting for military intelligence. Then civilian intelligence focuses on collecting information on politics, politicians, social issues, or events in societies. To some extent they might cooperate, but uh, not very deeply, I would say. They competed over the assets uh, because they wanted to have as many assets uh, as they could uh, within the embassy. So they competed sometimes who would have more assets within the embassy, which had nothing to do with real uh, serious intelligence collection. Very often they were deployed at the same embassy. Mostly the military intelligence uh, was working under cover of the defense attaché office. So the military attaché or his deputy were also the case officers. When it comes to the civilian intelligence, they were also working undercover as diplomats, mostly the first secretary or the attaché, or undercover as directors of some institutes. Now, in his research, Przemyslav Gastold has stories of both types of Polish intel gathering in Lebanon. However, military intelligence played a more prominent role here because of the location of Lebanon in the Middle East and of all the wars fought in Israel during this time. That is why we're going to focus mainly on military intelligence in this episode. Okay, so gathering human intelligence from humans was not a strong suit of the Polish military intelligence. 
It was quite an interesting discovery of mine when I uh, sweeped through these uh, files of the station that most of the data, they were taken for from newspapers, they were taken from English press, which was published at that time in Beirut. And what is also interesting is that the station didn't have its own radio. So they had to use private radios in order to record some auditions. Yes, they did not have a radio to send out encrypted messages. They got one in 1968. But they didn't even have a normal radio on which they could listen to and pick up normal broadcasts. So they had to borrow private radios to do their job. No wonder their achievements in spying weren't that great. Also, the Polish military intelligence headquarters weren't amazing in giving instructions or preparing their personnel. Let me just give you one example. In the 1960s, a Polish military intelligence officer is deployed to Lebanon, to the newly set up spying hub in Beirut. Back in Poland, he was a passionate stamp collector. So he asked permission from his superiors uh, whether he can join the local uh, stamp club, because he highlighted in this evaluation that probably he would use that for intelligence purposes. So he would just figure out who might attend the meetings of the stamp club and he would try to select some candidates for recruitment. And yes, he got the permission, he went there, but actually it turned out that there is nobody with valuable information what ends the stamp club. He decided to perform other operations and join meetings organized by the Goethe Institute in Beirut, West German institution, which probably he thought was used also for intelligence purposes by the BND. And yes, he joined some uh, meetings, some discussions at the Goethe Institute and tried to befriend with West Germans at the time. But uh, his idea failed. I mean, he couldn't make any contacts and he wrote in the reports that now the, the West Germans, they didn't want to speak with him. It was a total failure. He didn't know how to approach people, you know? It was a real, a real catastrophe, I would say. Polish military intelligence officers received no vetting or recruiting instructions and no training in infiltration. All the case officers knew was the order that they were given. One recruit per year. They didn't know how to do it. I mean, and I see this uh, challenge in other intelligence stations which were supervised by military intelligence. For example, they didn't know the language. They didn't know Arabic. There was only one person within the Polish security apparatus in the early 60s who speak Arabic, and that person was employed by counterintelligence. Moreover, the English was also very limited, and you cannot think about improving your human capabilities without some basic knowledge of the language. So am I right to understand the fact that this was not a sole example of a Polish intelligence not working well in Lebanon, but it was all over the world, really, that the Poles were not well prepared for this kind of a job? Yeah, they were not prepared because there are some factors which also should be taken into consideration. Like, for example, the differences in conducting intelligence operations in Western Europe in the Middle East. I mean, for example, how it was hard to find someone address 
process in Beirut. I mean, it was uh, more difficult than, for example, finding someone in London or in Stockholm or in, in Copenhagen where you can use like the book of telephone numbers and, and try to find someone. Moreover, I mean, the local habits also were important in order to maintain a good relationship which might transform into intelligence relationship. So this officer mostly were not taught how to do it. I mean, they were taught a basic intelligence or how to, to lose the surveillance team or how to send some coded messages. But local habits is also very important in order to have some topics to, to be discussed, uh, have some knowledge about the history about the culture, about the art of the place you are staying. They were not taught about this. Of course, it's military intelligence, so they were mostly focused on military areas. Yes, while people from the military don't usually talk about art or social affairs, if you want to do military intelligence in a foreign country, you need to move away from the hand grenade and arm supply talks to ordinary subjects. Przemyslav claims military intelligence officers from Canada, the US or France at that time were better prepared for their missions. So the Poles were just starting out in global military intelligence and the 1960s were a time of big failures. The Polish military intelligence gradually gained some assets, but ones that did not have access to valuable information regarding the military politics or social circles. This is about to change, big time. Everything started in 1968 from the, I would say, ordinary cocktail party at the Czechoslovak Embassy. Colonel Richard Tomaszewski, codenamed Jacques, was also invited to the event and went there. And he started to talk with one of the Palestinians who also was present at the party. This was a small talk and uh, all of them, I mean, this uh, Palestinian representative and uh, Polish military attaché officer, they decided to meet again and to conduct more official talks in a more secured area. It was the beginning of the close collaboration between the PLO or Al-Fatah Palestinian Liberation Organization and Al-Fatah and Polish military intelligence. It all started from this small talk at the Czechoslovak Embassy in Beirut. And then it was later transformed into more behind-the-scene collaboration and agreements uh, of various nature, like arms transfers, like intelligence uh, cooperation, political support. Yes, towards the end of the 1960s, Poland is talking to various Palestinian national movements, militias and terrorist organizations. Firstly, they tried to, and they did sell weapons to PLO, but uh, Beirut at the time was not a big city and rumors were spread very quickly. So the word was that the Poles were selling its weapons to PLO. So other uh, organizations also appeared at the gate of the Polish embassy and uh, asked whether they could also buy Polish weapons. So yes, the Poles did not refuse and they were supplying uh, Palestinian uh, 
PFLP, they were supplying Democratic Front of the Liberation of Palestine, they were supplying Abu Nidal organization, they were supplying also Asaika and probably other private arms brokers who were then reselling this weapon to various state and non-state actors. So I have many questions. One of them is obviously why were all of these organizations interested in Polish weapons? They wanted weapons. They couldn't purchase weapons in Western countries due to different reasons. I mean, embargo and U.S. policy. Uh, so they could uh, purchase uh, Eastern weapons from the Soviet bloc. In fact, Poland was not the first Soviet bloc country to supply the PLO and others with military equipment and even training. The Bulgarians or the Czechoslovaks were in on the business by the early 1970s. Of course, with the approval of the Soviets. Polish weapons was of quite good quality, comparing, for example, to Chinese or to even Bulgarians or to Soviet, like Kalashnikovs. So, yes, if the weapon was quite good and the price was also uh, important. And what types of weapons are we talking about? Do you know? We are talking mostly about light weaponry, like mortars, like ammunition, like AK-47 assault rifles, like grenades. But in the 80s, the Poles, they also delivered more sophisticated weapons, uh, like rockets and and like uh, other types of, of cutting-edge technology, Soviet technology at that time. But mostly at the end of 60s and early 70s, they were rather thinking of acquiring more uh, light weaponry intended for use for guerrilla warfare. And do we know all in all together how much was sold to terrorists and revolutionaries? It's a very good question and we cannot estimate how many weapons were sold or how much money the Poles earned during the Cold War on this murky contact. So it is very hard to estimate because we don't have access to all of the files. I've got some parts of these files and I would say that during two to four years they were able to send weapons worth of several like six million US dollar, eight million US dollars. So uh, it was very important contribution to the Polish budget which needed hard currencies at that time and especially in the 80s. So arms transfers were very important for the Polish economy. The countries who were interested in buying Polish weaponry were limited, were limited to Libya, to Syria, Iraq, India and to Palestinians who were perceived as the most important partner among non-state actors. So these countries Poland was allowed to do business with, military weaponry business. Yes, Poland was allowed because every time they had asked Moscow for permission to conduct business with state and non-state actors. And these documents show that the Poles wanted to conduct more independent policy when it comes to arms export, but the Soviets uh, didn't agree. I mean, they also wanted to have some fees from these transactions, since most of the weaponry were built on Soviet licenses. So most of the money then was going back to the USSR? No, but the Poles had to pay small licenses, small license fees, royal royalties. So the Poles were making most money on this business, but they were paying a small fee to the Russians or to the Soviets. Yeah, exactly. So everyone was benefiting from these transactions. And maybe this is a stupid question at a time of the Cold War, but was there any debate on whether or not even to do business with terrorists and revolutionaries? 
First of all, uh, nobody among the government circles nor within the military intelligence bosses thought of these movements as terrorists. I mean, they were perceived as national liberation movements, and even if they were involved in some sabotage or terrorist organizations, they were uh, allowed to operate in Poland. They were allowed to have business with Polish state-run companies since that was a political decision. So, since it was a political decision, there were no any debates whether we I mean, the Poles had to support or not some of the organizations. Secondly, military intelligence did know that some of the organizations were involved strictly in terrorism, like Abu Nidal organization or PLF of Abu Abbas, this organization which was uh, responsible for hijacking the Achille Lauro ship in 1985. But still, they conducted business with them because of the money. The Polish military intelligence didn't even shy away from financially supporting terrorist organizations by doing business through companies that were set up by these terrorist organizations. These companies were used as brokers for arms transfers. For example, the company of Abu Nidal, like SAS, which was established in Warsaw in 1983, was responsible for executing the contract which was signed by Poles and Iraqis. So this company acted as a broker from the contract of uh, delivering of weapons worth like 100 million US dollars. They killed uh, like two or three million US dollars and this money was clean because it was profit from the arms transfer and this money was used for terrorist organization for conduct uh, operations, logistical support, recruiting new members and so on. And that was the example of state sponsorship of terrorism. The Polish side didn't complain uh, because as long the money was flowing, they were happy to collaborate with everyone. The Poles wanted to make the arms business as smooth as possible, so they even bought a bank in Lebanon, in Beirut, in 1974, that could accommodate the needs of this murky business to allow arms dealers to deposit their money here, to process illegal transactions. Only a year later, however, civil war broke out in Lebanon, and all the millions of dollars in this bank disappeared. No one knows where to. There is an interesting thing you write in your article. You say the Polish also used Lebanon to get to Western military hardware. So until now, we've been talking about the fact that the Polish were providing mainly Soviet-made uh, weaponry to different revolutionaries and terrorists. But now you're saying it was also the other way around. Can you explain that to me? After Vietnam, Lebanon was probably the most important place where Polish intelligence collected Western-made weaponry because they wanted to acquire such weaponry in order to compare uh, how the weapon is made, what kind of uh, features the weapon had possessed and so on. That's why the Poles seized that opportunity and established many contacts with uh, small arms dealers who provided them with different kind of weapons. And these dealers were part of this secret intelligence network, which was handled by the military intelligence stations. And in the 80s, for example, it was the most important achievement of uh, military intelligence that they were able to collect and to gather uh, not only these weapons, but also information. They even had contacts with uh, Hezbollah. At last, after more than a decade of trying to infiltrate the military arena in Lebanon, Polish military intelligence found its intel among illegal arms dealers. 
So how long did this cooperation of, of, of Poland with the different terrorist and revolutionary groups go on for? We know that in 1975, Lebanese civil war broke out. How did that influence it? It lasted until 1990, at least, because the files which are available and in 1990. So we don't know how this relationship went after the fall of communism. We do know that the Poles started to conduct more pro-American policy on the international arena, which meant also severing some of the ties, Cold War ties, uh, but uh, some of other ties, intelligence ties, uh, were continued. Polish military leaders and representatives from the Cold War era have written books or given interviews about the state of the Polish military intelligence during the Cold War, claiming it was professional, very effective, stayed out of politics. But I wanted to check whether these claims were correct, and I read every page of the Beirut station, and I would say that I don't agree with this previous statement. And so Przemyslav discovered a very different, hidden story of Polish military intelligence in Lebanon. One that was not effective, kept ties with terrorists and paramilitary groups, and was involved in illegal financial activities. Not that professional, as it once claimed. However, on the grand Cold War scale of things... The 60s is the time decade of failures, but later in the 70s and the 80s, they did have some achievements and they were able at that time to recruit assets which provided them with valuable information. Why do you think it's important to talk about the Global South or the Third World during the Cold War era? I think it's important because sometimes intelligence performances were more important than political actions. And this Polish example might serve as a good point for discussion how intelligence liaisons, how intelligence contacts might transform into more developed political cooperation. Because it was the military intelligence in Poland that started to have contacts with PLO and Al-Fatah. And later, after a few years, this relationship became more of a political nature. That's why the roots of this political contacts were seeded by intelligence. That was Dr. Przemyslav Gastold from War Studies University in Warsaw. You can read his full article in the special issue of the International History Review under the title Wars, Weapons and Terrorists, Clandestine Operations of the Polish Military Intelligence Station in Beirut, 1965-1982. That was episode 9 of the Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance podcast. If you like our podcast and want to hear more of it, find us on any of the podcasting platforms like iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher or Google Podcasts and hit the plus or subscribe button so that you get the latest episode of the podcast as soon as it's out. And if you like our podcast or this episode in particular, share it or rate us so that more people can find out about the hidden stories of the Cold War. We have another episode coming out in two weeks time, so be on the watch out for it. Or in the meantime, check out our Twitter, we're at CWDominance or our Facebook under the name The Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance. And this is where we publish a lot of extra material that didn't make it into the podcast. 
this podcast is created and produced independently. Interviews, editing, sound design, and all the rest of it is done by me, Katarina Urban-Richterova. We would like to thank the Warwick Institute of Advanced Study for their contribution to the project. If you have any questions or comments or feedback regarding the podcast, please email us at codewarddominance, in one word, at gmail.com. Before we go, a huge thank you to Dr. Przemyslav Gastold for finding the time to talk to me. And of course, a big, big thank you to you guys for listening to the Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance podcast. And to lighten things up a bit, here is our regular nugget of wisdom and fun, a story hidden in secret files. Polish airline plane landed in 1981 in Beirut and when they opened the plane where the luggage were they noticed several hand grenades and RPG and AK-47 rifles which just uh, fall from the plane when they opened these gates. It turned out that uh, somebody in Warsaw at the Warsaw Kenchi airport just added these weapons which were covered in blankets from Warsaw Victor Hotel, the most prestigious hotel at that time, five stars in the 80s. So somebody took this uh, hotel blankets, covered the weapons with those blankets and put on the top of the luggage. And it was probably one of these operations we were talking about during this podcast, the illegal murky deliveries of light weaponry. It was probably aimed to be delivered to Christian militia. That's what the some, one of the radio stations broadcasted at that time. Weapon was confiscated, uh, pilots were debriefed, but didn't know anything. I mean, they knew, but they didn't tell what was going on. And then the passengers were, of course, released.